Hey, we have been talking about typologies, and I know that sounds kind of academic, but typologies are shadows. They're hints of things that will be, things to come. Uh, in the Bible, typologies are indicators of uh, the character and nature of God revealed uh, slowly through a process uh, in the scriptures, and uh, they reveal his character and nature, but they also reveal the details of his plan of redemption. So we're going to continue that today. Uh, but first, I want to tell you a story. Uh, last May 18th in Nashville, Tennessee, a young man named uh, Brian Williams was on his way to a swim meet at the Centennial Expo Center in Nashville. And it, it was about 1230, uh, shortly after lunch, and he was walking down the street and he heard a voice. Help, help. It was very faint, and he stopped, and he listened, and trying to zero in on it. Finally, he goes over to a sewer grate, and the voice is coming from deep down inside the sewer. And so he took the grate off, and he shined his phone down there, and about 20 feet back or so was a man stuck in the sewer. And the, and the guy just said, oh, I didn't think anybody heard me. I need help. And so he, you know, he called, Brian called the EMTs, called the police, called the fire department. They had to dig him out of the sewer. Uh, by then, the news media was there, and they shoved a camera in this guy's face and said, well, what was it like to be stuck in the sewer? And, of course, nobody had had a chance to talk to this guy yet, and he said, I've been there for four days. He said, I, I was worried about rain, I was worried about a number of things, but the overwhelming sense was that I felt so alone. I felt, I didn't know if anybody could hear me. I didn't know if anybody was missing me. I didn't know if anybody was coming for me. I didn't know if I would just die in the dark alone. That's kind of what this season is all about. And I've got good news for you today. If you've ever felt alone, you don't have to. You're not alone. If you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you know that the Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Now, we're not talking about feelings. We're talking about what Scripture says about what happens when we are saved by Jesus Christ. So we become one with him. We become one with the church. So you are not alone. And I want to show you how this works. And we're going to do that by looking at the ultimate typology in the Bible, which is Adam. And we're going to look at eight characteristics of Adam. Four of them are things that he has in common with the Messiah. And four are imperfect reflections of the Messiah. So I want to start with Genesis chapter 1. I want to start in the beginning. We all know that phrase. It's the opening words of the Bible. And it, it, said, it literally is talking about the beginning of everything. The beginning of time. The beginning of of creation. Now, I know some people think of the Big Bang Theory. I do too. I believe God went bang and everything came into place. So we can talk about the nuts and bolts of that some other time, but in the beginning, God created everything. He, create, he created, there was nothing. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to conceive of nothing, but there was nothing but God. In the beginning, God created everything. And you know what? Everything was good. Everything was good. It's all laid out there in Genesis chapter 1. Light is good. God creates light. It's good, verse 4. The waters and the lands are good. 
verse 10. The plants are good, verses 11 through 13. The separation of day and night, the 24-hour time period is good, verses 14 through 18. The birds and the, the animals, the, the marine animals are all good. Everything in the sea, everything that flies in the air, verse 20 through 23, they are good. And all of the land animals, catch this, I know this is going to be hard for some of us to believe because it's hard for me to believe, all the bugs, all, you know, I don't know why he created them. Um, I, I know the ecological reason for bugs being here. But the bugs are good. It's all good, verses 24 through 26. And then, then God reaches down in the middle of all this goodness, and he takes some dirt, and he forms it, and he breathes life into it, and he creates a man. And he gives this man dominion over everything he's created. And he proclaims all of it, including the man, to be good. Verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 14, is kind of a reiteration of that. Um, that I, I don't believe in this gap idea between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There are two types of literature here. We're not going to get into a lot of that, but in verses 1 through 14, there's a repetition of the, uh, the creation account. And then in verse 15, we see this. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. God's created this beautiful garden, a home for the man. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I said, look, all this is good. By my decree, this is exactly what I have created, and it's good. And Adam, name's not Adam yet, I got one thing. You have one job. Don't eat from that tree. <laughs> That's all you got to worry about, Adam. Don't eat from that tree right over there. And God, God calls his attention to the tree. Now, there's a reason for that. We'll do a whole sermon series about that sometime. But it's all Adam has to worry about. Don't eat from this particular tree. Now, verse 18, then the Lord God said, watch this, it is not good that the man should be alone. Semicolon, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I love this passage right here because we all have our own idea about how this works. And I got to tell you something, biblical theologians have a different idea about how this works as well. Some think that these are two dependent clauses and one runs into the other. Some think it's not. Some people think that God says it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helper for him. So some people think it, that they're not totally dependent on each other. But almost everybody, there are a lot of people that when you go to talk to them about the Bible, you say, God says it's not good for man to be alone, I'll make a helper for him. And you say, what happens next? And a lot of people go, oh, he makes, he makes a woman. It's not what happens. Okay, And that's why we've got to be careful about what we do with this passage right here. Because at this point, it is God and the man. They're, they're, they're the only two that are, are in the garden. Okay, So, 
The first thing that is not good about creation is that the man should be alone. Now, what we learn from this, you know, we see that, that Adam was created. Um, we also learn that he's created and is relational. He's created to be relational. So the question would be, who is he going to relate to? And the, the, the quick answer is, well, the woman, when God makes the woman. But look what happens. God says, okay, I made you to be relational. In verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. God doesn't make the woman. He says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to bring all the animals to you, and you're going to name them. Now, this is a sign of his dominion, a sign of his authority. He gets to name them. But we have this statement that it's not good for man to be alone, and God says, and you and I are going to begin working together. I don't know how long it took Adam to name the animals. I do know that Adam lived in a 24-hour day. And I also know that there were a lot of animals and I think it took a long time. A little bit later on, we find out it's kind of customary for God to spend the cool of the afternoon in, with Adam. So God says it's not good for you to be alone. You and I are going to have a relationship. I'm going to show you who I am. I've created you. I've made you to be relational. I've given you dominion over these things. And we're going to get to know each other. I think it took a long time to name the animals. I think... Adam was a typical male. I think he wanted to impress God. Platypus, one T, God. Rhinoceros. I think he started running out of names. I think at the end he was like, cat, dog, bug. How many of these things do you have? However long it took, the very first relationship established for our man who's not good to be alone is with his father in heaven. So in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, now we have the so. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Watch what he just said here. This is different. I mean, we see that the woman is created differently. She's created uniquely. The man's made out of dirt. God takes a bone from the man and makes this woman. And the man sees it right away. This is different. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is me. This is part of me. This isn't like those animals that came up. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, he names the woman, but in the context of having a unique relationship with her it's not the same as the animals if Adam just needed somebody to wash his dishes he could have made a monkey do it 
He could have trained them how to do it. This is different. Some people go and went, whoa, man. How unique was that relationship? Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. They will be united physically. They will be united spiritually. They will become one. Something miraculous will happen. Something supernatural will happen when this man and this woman join together. Hold on to that thought as we go forward. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, so far, we've seen that this man is created by God. He's made to be relational. He has dominion. Everything is good. The only thing not good about creation is that the man should not be alone. And we think we've got that solved. Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. It's accurate so far. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she's trying to be accurate here. She's trying to be careful. She's adding a little bit to the word of God, but it's all with good intentions, right? Okay? But the serpent said to the woman, you will sh- surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now the picture begins to change. And I want you to see exactly what's happening here. Because all of this takes place under a tree. God's given very specific instructions about this tree. And... The woman is under the tree as this temptation rises up. And it's pretty tempting. So in verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when she looked at it and go, that looks pretty tasty. And I'm hungry. I wonder what it tastes like. That's how temptation enters our life just a little bit at a time, doesn't it? And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise the woman is seduced by the fruit she's seduced not just by how the fruit looks by the promise of the fruit she's taken in and she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He's standing there. Now, you know, we, we all assume that God had some, some uh, communication with the woman, but the scripture doesn't tell, that, uh, tell us that. What the scripture does tell us is that God had told the man directly not to eat of this tree. And he's standing there watching it happen. And so what? Now we learned something else about him. He is an imperfect spouse. Anybody have one of those? Nobody's going to put your hands up, but let me tell you something. If you do, so does your spouse. Amen. Because none of us are, right? Okay. 
So he's an imperfect spot. And, and, and how imperfect is he? And I, I, want, I, I just want to lay this in front of you. I'm going to give you some conjecture here. I think Adam is watching it happen because fruit looks good to him too. And saying to himself, uh, well, let me see what happens. I've got 12 more ribs. God made one. Maybe I can give up another if this one dies. I don't know. But whatever is happening, whatever is happening, Adam is having a fully self-centered moment. Because when the woman doesn't die, he eats. So not only do we learn that he is an imperfect spouse, we learn that he is sinful. He disobeys God. It's blatant rebellion. He had one job, and he couldn't do it. And then in verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, you're familiar with what happens next. They're in the garden. They encounter God. God knows what's going on. You know, sometimes you, people will read that section and think God's out there looking for him. He's not looking for him. God never goes on a fact-finding mission. He knows everything. He's omniscient. So he finds him. He confronts him. Curses are pronounced on the, on the serpent, on the woman, on the man. And then in Genesis 3, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, follow me on this because this is another characteristic of Adam. Okay? Eve is the mother of all living. Adam is the only man. He is the father of all living. We need to embrace this. We need to understand this. We can talk about ethnicity. We cannot talk about race. We all have the blood of Adam flowing through us. We all have the nature and the characteristics of Adam flowing through us. We may be different colors. Uh, we may be different sizes and shapes and so on and so forth, but we are one race. We are the human race, and Adam is our representative. We bear the character and nature of Adam, and Adam fell. Now, we don't look at Adam and go, you know what, it's his fault. We have the same character and nature. I've got to tell you something, brothers and sisters. We look at this and we say, you know, I, I say to myself, if I was under that tree, I would never have done that. I would have. Faced with the likelihood of being like God, I would eat the fruit. It's in my nature. We bear the nature of Adam. He is our representative. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The first hint of what redemption looks like. The first view of death in the garden. See, I think Adam looked at Eve and said she didn't die. And then he ate and he didn't die. And the, the, the great deception that they fell for was that they thought the death would be immediate. It wasn't. Death was introduced into the creation that God made. They would surely die. But up until here, we have no indication that there was any type of death in the garden. People are like, well, didn't the animals fight? I don't know. Okay? But what we see is that they're caught in their sin. God pronounces judgment over them. 
and then places bloody animal skins over him. Let me cover you before we move forward here. Let me cover you with this sacrifice. So we hear an echo of the gospel just in these animal skins. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God is not saying, gee, we've got to be careful here. Otherwise, he's going to live forever. This is an act of grace. This is an act of mercy. Adam has sinned. He separated himself from God. And God is saying, I'm not going to allow him near the tree of eternal life so that he doesn't spend eternity in his sin. We've already seen the echo of the serpent and the heel and so on and so forth and the, the, the skins. We've already seen the echo that there may be a plan of redemption in effect. And God is going to remove this man and this woman from the garden so that that can work itself out. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree, tree of life. And everything just falls apart. Adam has sinned. A curse has been pronounced. He's put out of the garden. He watches the gate close to the garden and lock. And then he sees an angel standing there and Adam knows there's no way back. He was in the garden. He had everything provided for him. Food, shelter, walking with God. Now he's out. All he's got is a skin to wear. Think about it. He's got no tools. He's got no food. He's got no place to live, and he's separated from the Father. And he realizes the magnitude of what he's done. And yes, he's there with Eve, but get this, they're one flesh. They're alone. They're utterly, devastatingly alone. Left to their own devices. Going to have to learn how to dig in the ground. Going to have to learn how to make food. Going to have to build a house. Going to have to figure this out. They're not just alone. They're absolutely devastated. Now we know the story doesn't end there. But the stage has been set. Adam was the first man. He's a representative for all mankind. He's created. Uh, he, he's, he's relational in his nature. He's had dominion over things. He, he's, he did his most significant work underneath a tree. He's an imperfect spouse. He is sinful. And he brought death. And in the end, he is apart. He's alone. Separated from God. So we see in the story that man falls through a representative. Someone who bears his the same character and nature. We hear the faint echo, uh, the shadow of a curse, but we also at the same time hear the echo of the promise of redemption. We have no idea what it looks like, but it's there. 
The Bible is full of these shadows. All of them are designed to give us hope. All of them are designed to reveal something about the character and nature of God. Designed to show us a way that we might never be alone again. The man and his family, they grow. They continue to sin. No big surprise there. It's their nature. God wipes out all of humanity except for one man and his family, another representative. And they begin, they continue to sin almost immediately after everything happens. God chooses some guy out in the middle of nowhere called Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the nations in the world through you. You're going to be the father of nations. And miraculously, that happens. The family grows, and, and we see more shadows of what has come. The family is enslaved down in Egypt so that we could see that, that sin enslaves us, that it captures us. Egypt becomes a synonym for sin in the Bible. They're led out of Egypt by Moses so that we could see that God will send a leader one day to lead us out of our sin. God gives them the law so that they get a glimpse of the magnitude of his holiness. He gives them the tabernacle and then the temple to show the world that God lives among his people. Then he gives them land to remind us that that there is a land prepared for us, that there's an eternal home waiting for us where God is. Then he gives them a good and powerful king, not a perfect king, but he gives them a good and powerful king to show them that God is the one who raises up the good and perfect king. Then again, they are enslaved as a reminder that we're unable to save ourselves. In spite of all the blessings, we still fall into sin. We're desperate for a savior. Then they return to their land and remind us of God's promise to redeem us and set us free. I've said it before, the story of the Hebrews is our story. Finally, a baby's born. Supernatural. Miraculous. Something the world has never seen and thought impossible. A flesh and blood baby that is somehow fully human and fully God at the same time. Bends our minds to think about it. God come down in the flesh manifesting himself as this baby to make real every prophecy, every promise he ever made. And in the baby, every shadow in the Bible is now cast in light. Every secret is revealed. All darkness is covered by God's glory and the baby is here to undo the work of Adam. He's here to undo the work of Adam. Because he is human, he can represent all mankind. Because he is God, he can forgive and redeem. Pastor Scott read it earlier. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this new representative, this baby who will grow into a man who never sins, who is perfect, becomes the representative for all mankind. He does not fail. He is perfect in every way. He did what no one else could ever do. He stood in man's place, took on man's sin, bore the wrath of God, and redeemed man, reconciled him to God. So do you see the second shadow of Adam? I mean, we saw Adam's characteristics. The first Adam, he was created by God. He was relational. He had dominion over everything. He did his most significant work under a tree. He was an imperfect spouse. He was sinful. He brought death. And in the end, he was apart. He was separated from God. He and Eve are absolutely alone. Jesus Christ comes 4,000 years later. Jesus wasn't created by God. He was God. He wasn't just relational. He was Trinitarian in his nature. The most intimate relationship anything in creation could ever have. He was absolutely sovereign over everything. He had the ultimate dominion. And he did his most powerful work not under a tree, but on a tree. See how God shows us the way? He wasn't an imperfect spouse. He's the perfect groom. And he's not sinful. He's sinless. And far from being separated from God, the baby is, the baby is Emmanuel. The baby's God with us. Think about that for a second. The baby is God with us, named 700 years prior to being born. Adam's sin separated us from God, left us to our own devices, left us alone. But it's not good for man to be alone. See, I think that's the ultimate interpretation of that line. It's not good for man to be apart from God. You know how not good it is for man to be apart from God? If he's apart from God, he burns forever. So God will make a helper for him. Now you all thought that was about being married. Plug it into eternity. God sends his son to live a sinless life. Offer that life up on the cross in payment for our sins. Those of us who believe that he's the only son of God, those of us who believe the miracle that happened on Christmas Day, whatever date it was, receive eternal life. But it's hard to walk in that eternal life, isn't it? So Jesus raises up in the heaven after the resurrection so that he can send a helper. (laughs) It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper. In Adam, God is apart from us. In Christ, 
God is with us. You see, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're not alone. It's not just a feeling. It's a promise of God. And he weaves this story through this Bible for 2,000 years, saying this is the truth. You don't have to be alone. I'm with you. I'll be your strength. I'll be your rest. Make me the focus of your life. I'll give you everything that you need. So if you're a believer, that promise is true. There will be times when you feel alone. I think Jesus even relates to that. I think when he was on the cross and said, Father, why have you forsaken me? I think he wanted us to let us know that I know what it feels like to be alone. But I'm not. Because the next thing he says is, into your hands I commend my spirit. So you don't have to feel alone. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you feel like that guy stuck in the pipe, I don't know if anybody hears me. I don't know if anybody cares about me. I don't know if anybody's coming for me. Somebody's coming for you. (laughs) They arrived 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And he would call you to repent from your sins and turn to him and receive eternal life and have that security that that man felt when they broke through that pipe and let him out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for these shadows that you show us, Lord. Shadows that reveal who you are and how you move among us. We thank you for the indicators. We thank you for the presence, Father, of the Holy Spirit inside us, giving us the assurance, Father, being the deposit on our eternal welfare, Father, on our relationship with you. We thank you for the oneness we have with you and with each other. And we thank you for the reminder of all of that bundled up in the form of a little baby lying in a manger in an out-of-the-way place so long ago. We pray, Father, you continue to impress that reality upon us, Lord, that it might come flowing from us in waves of truth and beauty. In Jesus' name.